Well, praise God for the opportunity to gather again as God's people. That is who we are. We are the people of the living God. And, you know, if you're here this morning and these words we're singing are strange to you and these prayers, know this, that what happens here on a Sunday morning is not a, a, just a series of rituals that give structure and meaning to our lives. That's not what this is. It's not just a, a system of ethics and a, a system of moral stories that help us raise our children. What you're seeing here today in the singing and the praying and the preaching and all of that is the, the heartbeat of the people of God as we enjoy our crying out to our God, thanking him for what he's done for us, that he has saved us, that through Christ he has given us life. And if that's not you, if you're just going through the motions this morning, get with the Lord, pray to the Lord and ask him to give you a heart for him, to give you a heart of praise and thanksgiving for the gospel of his son. So if you would go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 31. We believe that the preaching ministry of the church should be the teaching of the scriptures. And so we come now to the instruction portion of our service. This is another element in uh, the, the worship service that we have here as we praise God together, we confess our sins, we, we call out to him as a call to worship, we come together to worship him, we consider his greatness, we confess our sins, we thank him for pardon and grace, we pray for others, we pray for leaders, pray for our church, and we come around his word, sit underneath his word to be taught in accordance with his will. And so that's what we're doing right now as, as we come to Genesis 31. We've been going through Genesis for quite some time, and now we find ourselves in chapter 31. And several weeks ago, we had a sermon entitled, The God of Jacob. We've seen the, the God of Abraham and of Isaac, that this God is also the God of Jacob. God had repeatedly promised Abraham and Isaac land offspring and that he would bless the entire world through them. So lest we see this as just some isolated uh, set of, of events in the ancient world 4,000 years ago, the promises that God makes to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the promises that God makes are, are cosmic in their scope. That God promises he's going to bring blessing to every family of the world, every nation of the world, through his faithfulness to his promises to these random nomads. So lest we think our life is meaningless and just run-of-the-mill mundane, we remember that we're a part of this. That our lives have cosmic significance. And that was the case for Abraham and Isaac as God came to them and made these promises. And then in chapter 28, God does the same for Isaac's son, Jacob. God is going to build a great nation through these patriarchs. And if you're unfamiliar with biblical history, what we're doing is we're really setting up the foundations for the nation of Israel. And if you want to understand the Bible and how the Bible fits together, the Old Testament is everything before Christ. And it's about Israel, the nation, the nation from which the Christ will come. And Christ comes. And in the New Testament, we have Christ put before us. 
Christ comes and, and the apostles are reflecting on his coming. And they're bearing witness to his resurrection from the dead and the life that can be found in him. So the Old Testament is about the nation of Israel preparing for the Christ. And the Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's promises to that nation. And so what we are reading as we come to Genesis is so fun to, and fascinating to, to start at the beginning of the story. Which is where you start in any story. is right at the beginning. And to see God building a nation through these men. And when he comes to Jacob, he ends his message of promise with these words. Chapter 28, verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Now, one of the mistakes that we can often make as we go through the Bible is to misappropriate the words of Scripture. So we read these verses all throughout uh, the Bible. I know, I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord. That's one of those verses that uh, in the Old Testament that gets hijacked, put on coffee cups and T-shirts, and taken entirely out of its context. So we have a tendency to misappropriate passages of Scripture And take them into our lives too quickly without understanding their context. But one thing that we need to recognize is that when God speaks words of promises to his people, he is speaking that to his people. That when God says to Jacob, I am with you, will keep you, there is a sense in which as God's people, most certainly we ought to appropriate that for ourselves. As the descendants of Jacob by faith, we are offspring of Abraham by faith, This is an expression of God's attitude towards you. Now, let me read that again. Behold, I am with you and will keep you. Do you realize that? Every morning you wake up, the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is, as it were, saying to you, I am with you and I will keep you. He is present and he is protective Every second of every day, whatever that means, according to his wisdom, he's with us always. So for the last few weeks, as we think about Jacob, we've been looking at God's fulfillment of this promise in 2815, God's fulfillment of this promise to Jacob, this promise of being with him and watching over him. And we have seen this fulfillment Come in phases. So, just to situate where we're at in Genesis, God is making these promises to Jacob. He makes these promises to Jacob as he's on his way. He's traveling from Canaan to Haran to extended family. He's traveling there. God comes to him and makes these promises to him. And what we've been looking at for the last few weeks are phases of fulfillment. Think about it that way. These are phases of God fulfilling these promises. And so, phase one was a wife. And of course, we know that became wives because of human sin. God meets his people where they are. He works in the midst of our sinfulness, his providence, his sovereignty works. We see that at the end of Genesis when Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is even sovereign over their wicked act. So here we have wife being turned to wives. It is because of human sin, and yet God is sovereign over it, building a nation through it. 
phase two was offspring. We saw this proliferation of babies just coming, coming, coming. All of these children there being born to Jacob. So the promise of offspring. And then phase three is what we looked at last week. Prosperity. That just as God had come to Abraham and had blessed him with material prosperity because God is building a nation through these people, an earthly nation through them, that just as God had come to Abraham and and blessed him in this way, so too he came to Isaac and so too he has come to Jacob. So three phases, wife, offspring, prosperity. And today we come to a fourth phase. And the focus as we enter into this fourth phase is on protection. God protects Jacob from his greedy, dishonest, unjust, and anger-filled uncle Laban. And that's what we are seeing. This is going to continue as he approaches Esau. So we're going to see God protecting Jacob from Laban. And then we're going to see a little later God protecting Jacob from his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him. So the title for the sermon this morning is The Great Escape. And if you would go ahead and, turn, go ahead and uh, stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Genesis 31, verses 1 to 55. Yes, 1 to 55 is a long passage. Just bear with me. Really, all of this hangs together. I thought about doing it in two parts, but it really... you. you It all just hangs so nicely together. So just bear with me. We're going to go through all 55 of these verses today. And now we're going to read all 55 of them. This is God's precious, holy, perfect, and profitable word. And that's why we stand in reverence of it. Genesis 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. We see that reiterated there. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, And said to them, these are his two wives, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. Verse 6, you know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages. Then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now, arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us. 
and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. Verse 17, so Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so, so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of your own household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. 
Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day? For these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mitzpah, for he said, The Lord watch between you and me when you are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with me, see God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. You can go ahead and be seated. Thank you for your patience. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. And let's ask him to show us from his word here what he would have us to see as his people. Father, your word is precious to us. It is our only basis for thinking, our only basis for life. We see around us your revelation through creation. And yet without the spectacles, as Calvin says, of your word, we would not even be able to see rightly the natural creation. But through your word, everything opens up to us, Father. We have eyes to see. We praise you for that. And even here in these stories of old, these stories that seem so detached from the real life experiences of today, how they speak so loudly to us about the glory of our great God and the watchful care that you give us day by day. Father, we thank you that one day we will recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in your kingdom and that we will recognize that this is our story Fully, that this is the story of the people of God throughout history, that we have been grafted in, as Paul says in Romans 11, that we have been grafted into your people, Israel, the household of God, that we have become partakers with the nation, the earthly nation, the physical nation, that we have been grafted into this. And one day you will bring in a mass salvation of the Jewish people, as Paul says in Romans 11, for all Israel will be saved. Father, we thank you for that, your glorious redemptive plan that unfolds throughout history so that all people, both Jew and Gentile, might praise you for your mercy. God, we thank you for your plan of redemption. And we thank you that as we come to this text, you are showing us who we are in Christ. We pray that you would guide us now to take on this large set of verses that we would see it clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we come today to this 
long passage, I think what we have here are four movements within this text, four movements to this story of Jacob's escape from Laban, four movements to this story of God's protection. So I'm going to give those to you now. And you can see them in your outline. You've got the sermon, I mean, in, the, in your bulletin. You have the sermon title and the points. And so these are the four movements that we're going to look at of this story. First, the resolve. Second, the exit. Third, the confrontation. And fourth, the treaty. Pretty straightforward as we walk through this text. So let's look first at the resolve. Focusing on verses 1 to 16. If you've been following this story, you will recall Jacob's excitement when he first arrived at Laban's home. Right? Things have changed over the years, but you will remember how excited he was, how he, he weeps in praise to God when he first arrives at Laban's home, when he first meets Rachel. God had promised him land. But he was a homeless wanderer running away from the promised land because of his brother's hostility. God had promised him offspring, but he had no wife. He had nothing but a staff. And it's in this state of having nothing, of having no home, it's in this state that he arrives at Laban's house. God had directed him to the well, to his future wife Rachel, and to the safety of his uncle's home. So very naturally, going from a state of being homeless on the run to being safe and secure in the home of his relatives to whom Isaac had sent him and having a wife, says he works for her for seven years and seemed to him but a few days. This is a time of excitement. But now it has been 20 years in Laban's home. Laban has repeatedly deceived him and changed his wages. Laban has made promises to Jacob that he has not lived up to. And yet God has prospered him greatly in the midst of this mistreatment. He has quite a large family. And in chapter 30, verse 43, we read that he increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys. So he comes across with no family and a staff. And now he's got all these possessions. Twelve children, eleven sons and one daughter. He'll have another son later named Benjamin. And he has all of this from the Lord. So now, after 20 years of mistreatment and yet 20 years of God's watchful care, Jacob resolves to leave. To leave Laban's home and head back to Canaan. Back to the land where he was born. Back to the land that God had promised him. We saw in last week's passage that Jacob is already wanting to go. But he's, Laban talks him into staying. And God uses that to build up Jacob's wealth. But now we see Jacob is clearly resolved to leave. To leave Laban's house. As we look at verses 1 to 16... We see that Jacob's resolve to leave is based on three things. So I want you to look at these three things. You can write these down. These are a way of summing up these verses. I won't reread all of these verses, but we're going to go through and, and, and uh, highlight those things that, uh, that are of particular importance for carrying this story along. But what we see are three things as we come to these first 16 verses, as we look at the resolve of Jacob. Three things. One, observation. Two, revelation. And three, collaboration. 
Observation, revelation, and collaboration. So if we're understanding the resolve that Jacob has, we would say that this resolve is built on these three things. The resolve derives from these three things. Observation, revelation, and collaboration. So first, observation. Verses 1 to 2 says that he hears and sees the tension that now exists with Laban and his sons. This has become a very tense situation. The sons are envious and resentful of Jacob's prosperity at the expense of their father. And Laban has grown cold and sour towards Jacob. You know, it's interesting. It makes you wonder. I mean, hasn't Laban really been cold and sour towards Jacob the whole time? He's been mistreating him the whole time. So it makes you wonder, what is it that Jacob sees in his face, in his demeanor, that makes him realize this is not a good situation? It hasn't been a good situation all along. What now? Who knows what would have happened to Jacob had he stuck around, quite honestly. But he, he perceives these things. He observes these things, verses 1 to 2. So that's observation. Second... And most importantly is revelation. He doesn't leave ultimately because of what he observes. He leaves ultimately because of what God says. God calls Jacob to leave. Now it is time for the God of Bethel to bring Jacob back to Bethel to fulfill his vow. Remember when when God came to him? Jacob said, "If, if you'll give me food and clothing. Well, God has given him far more than food and clothing. Then Jacob says, then I will come back. I vow to you, I will come back and I'll worship you here in this place. Well, now the God of Bethel is saying, I want you now to come back. It's time to come back and fulfill your vow to me. Verse three, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred and I will be with you. Verse 13, later as he's describing this to Rachel and Leah, he says that God said this to him, I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So we see observation, we see revelation. This resolve is built on these two things, but it's also built on collaboration. Thirdly, Jacob does not act independently of his wives. So Jacob does not do what Laban later says he does, and that is drive away his wives with the sword. Instead, he goes to them. Very respectfully. He calls them out to the middle of the field because he wants it to be secretive. No one can hear. He can see that no one's listening but his two wives. And he explains to them what he is going to do. He calls Laban's daughters here to the field to tell them his intentions to leave their father's house. I wonder what Jacob thought they would say. I mean, you imagine these wives could have said, absolutely not. We are not leaving our father's house. Ran back to Laban. Can you believe what Jacob is scheming? Can you believe what he's trying to do? So we might imagine some risk here. But Jacob knows that it's going to happen because he trusts in the Lord. And the Lord has already told him what he needs to do. And so he reminds these daughters of Laban of Laban's mistreatment. He explains how God has cared for him and he informs them of God's call to leave. And these wives of Jacob and daughters of Laban recognize that Laban's mistreatment of Jacob has been mistreatment of them. In other words, these two daughters, Leah and Rachel, are not only able to reflect, you know what, Jacob, you're right. 
our father has treated you unjustly. No, they're able to say more than that, given all that's gone on. They're able to say, what our father has done to you, he has done to us. He has sold us. He has treated us as nothing. So they recognize the wickedness of their father and his mistreatment of the family. And so they say to him, verse 16, all the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. And so we see here the resolve of Jacob. It is built on these three things, observation, revelation, and collaboration. So what do we do with these, these set, this set of verses, these first 16 verses? What are some major implications for us as we progress through this text? Well, I think there are two. Two major implications that bear on our lives. First, this call from God shows that God has been watching over Jacob in the midst of his hardships. But only now, now listen to this, only now, after 20 years, does God call him away from these hardships, from this suffering. You know what I think that teaches us? If God leaves us, it's not because he is uncaring or unable to take us away from something or somewhere, but it is because of his wisdom. It is because he is overseeing our lives with perfect wisdom. And so if God leaves us in a place, if God leaves us in a situation, in a frame of mind, it is not a time to question his goodness or his ability, but a time to wait in faith. And we've seen that theme, right? We've seen that going all the way back, this theme of waiting on the Lord. That, that the person of God must wait on the Lord, waiting on his timing. It's when we lose sight of that, that we shake our fist at God. That we get fussy toward God. That we, that we fight against God in our circumstances and we complain and we grumble. I was just listening the other day to Exodus and it's amazing when you read those opening chapters or after they're, they're brought out of, out of Egypt, how they grumble against the Lord. They complain about everything. And I had just gotten through complaining to the Lord about something just the night before. And I listened, I heard that, and it was like, I said in my mind, how could they do that? And it was like immediately the Lord said, well, why did you do that last night? That's what we do. We grumble. We complain against the Lord. Because we don't like to wait. We like things now. And God does not work with his people that way. So that's, I think, one implication that we see here from this first set of verses. Another is this. The response of faith in Jacob and his wives shows us that God calls and we go. Period. That is the nature of the Christian life. When I first came to Four Corners, there was some discussion over the relationship between grace and obedience. That there was some tension that had been previous in the church between those who emphasized, uh, well, at least seemed to emphasize grace and those who at least seemed to emphasize uh, 
obedience and that there's a tension between these two. What we see in Genesis is that there is absolutely no tension between a graced life that responds in obedient faith. Every single one of the people in Genesis who've been graced by God have obeyed God. So the notion that somehow there is a a life of grace that takes obedience lightly is foreign to the Bible. To manifest and evidence grace is to obey God. There is no shortcut. There is no fluttery feeling oriented grace like life. There is the grace of God producing obedience in the people of God. That is the biblical Christian life. We see that. We see that here. God calls, they go. That's what defined Abraham. That's what defined Isaac. Remember when he stayed in the land, he didn't go down to Egypt, he stayed. That's what defined Noah before him. God said, build it. What did Noah do? He built it. Obedience will show whether or not we really have faith by grace. That's what James 2 is all about. James 2 is not out of sync with Paul. Paul preaches a gospel of grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. James has the same gospel, but he says all of this produces obedience, holiness of life, a character that shines forth the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. It is in the very nature of the Christian to obey God. So a life of disobedience, as we read from 1 John earlier, shows that you walk in the darkness and you don't really belong to the God of light. So don't be deceived this morning. If your life is a pattern of disobedience against God, then that should tell you that you may not be a believer. You may have grown up in the South. You may have been raised as a Christian. You may have these disciplines that you do. You may have all kinds of things that you associate with being a Christian. But, but unless you have received God's grace that produces obedience, you have reason to wonder whether you are of this God. So we see first the result. Secondly, we see The exit, the exit. In verses 17 to 24, we read of Jacob's exit. Resolve has turned into action. It begins verses 17 to 18. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. I think that we can sum up this exit, once again, as we try to to tackle quite a large passage here. I think that we can sum up this exit with four words. Let me give you those four words to help us work through this. Fleeing, stealing, pursuing, and warning. Three pieces that Put together, verses 17 to 24, the exit. So first, fleeing. Rather than informing Laban that his time had come to an end, and he is leaving no matter what. Right? He could have done that. He could have said, Laban, listen, I've served you faithfully. I'm leaving. Period. With God's word behind him. God's word undergirding him, knowing that the God who had called his father and his grandfather was also calling him, was going to do what needed to be done in order to protect him. He could have done that, but he doesn't do that. 
He fearfully flees while Laban is away shearing his sheep. He just scoots away, running, escaping. Fear is a common theme among the patriarchs. And that's encouraging. That's encouraging to us. We see it. I just want to give you a few verses that will really bring this out. Chapter 15, verse 1. Remember Abraham, right in the middle of the Abraham covenant, Abrahamic covenant. Listen to what the Lord says to him. Fear not. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Chapter 26, verse 24. This is his son, Isaac. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you. And later, Jacob will explain why he fled from Laban. Chapter 31, verse 31. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid. Because I was afraid. Do you see that? Fear in the heart of Abraham. Fear in the heart of Isaac. And now fear in the heart of Jacob. You know, fear is a common theme in our lives. How much of what we do is motivated by fear. Isn't that what we saw in Abraham's life? And Isaac, the, the, the way that they go and they, they tell these lies, they sort of throw their wives under the bus to say, look, she's just my sister. How often in our lives as Christians, we talked earlier about grumbling against the Lord when things don't go our way or happen in our timing. Don't we also see in us fear, fearfulness of all sorts of things that may happen, that could happen. And the Lord says the same thing in the midst of fear. He says the same thing to Jacob that he said to Abraham, that he said to Isaac, and that he says to you when you open up his precious word and read it and appropriate it for your own life. He says the same thing to each of us. I am with you. Don't fear. That's what God is saying to you this morning as you consider a passage like this. So that's first, fleeing. We also see here, stealing. It's not just fear that taints this exit. It's also theft. Theft. Rachel takes her father's household gods. What in the world is she doing? I mean, you come to this passage and it just doesn't fit. It's like someone just sort of dropped it in right there, but it, but it, it, it reappears later. In the dispute as they confront each other. As Laban and Jacob talk about it. What is Rachel doing? Taking her father's household deities. These little. And you could go and you can, uh, you can look at this online. Or you can go. I, I remember uh, I went with my father-in-law years ago to the Met. And we walked around. And I, one of my favorite parts of a museum. I've said this before. Is the uh, ancient Near Eastern part because it makes me think of Abraham and all the, uh, the earliest portions of the scriptures that we, that we get. And I just love walking around seeing all of that, although 90% of it is, is idolatry, literally. I mean, it just shows you how there is in man an intuition that there's a God who needs to be worshipped. But we see these little figurines, these little goofy looking figurines. I mean, these things are weird looking. Exaggerated eyes and other things. Exaggerated. It's You've seen them. It's, it's strange. But that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about these little divine, supposedly divine figurines that they would uh, 
pray to and, and they would see as protecting the home and all kinds of different, different facets of this idolatry. So why in the world on her way out does Rachel say, oh yeah, I got to get those, those little gods. What is she doing? Well, it's hard to be sure about her motivation and uh, scholars, commentators have reflected on what is at work here. There is some ancient evidence to suggest that these small idols held the key to inheritance rights. That whoever has them somehow has the inheritance, has those inheritance rights, the property rights. So they're, they're integrally connected to the wealth of the family. There's some ancient evidence to suggest that And so Rachel here would be simply taking possession of what she feels has wrongfully been taken from her. This is just vindictive. This is just uh, pure theft, pure theft, monetary theft. It has no religious significance at all. Or it could be some lingering idolatry. Although I tend away from this view, given that the way that she treats these gods later, these little idols later, the way she sits on them doesn't show much regard or reverence for them at all. If you think about it, I mean, she sits on them later, treating them really as nothing. So whatever's going on here, it's not good, but it is stealing mixed with this fleeing. And then thirdly, see the pursuing, the pursuing. So when Laban finds out, he sets out to bring them back. He is angry and ready to fight. Verse 23, he took his kinsmen, Look at this intensity, the intensity of this. Verse 23, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. If he wasn't angry about having been uh, robbed, if he wasn't angry about not even being able to say goodbye to his family, of course, over the seven-day period, I'm sure he's getting more and more irritated because, you know, seven days journey out means seven days journey back. And so all of this is just a massive inconvenience. He's angry. You can almost feel the anger and frustration. He is ready to hurt this man. He's ready to hurt his son-in-law, whom he has treated really like a slave. He will later tell Jacob in verse 29, it is in my power to do you harm. So Laban went to do harm. He pursued Jacob to do him harm. Jacob has fled. And as Laban sees it, Jacob has added injury to insult by, or is it the other way around? One of those. He has stolen his household gods. So we see this pursuing. And then finally, most importantly, we see the warning. Come to this. This is... What stands out most in these verses in the midst of all this sinful human activity, right? So much sin, the sin of Laban, the sin of Rachel, the sin of Jacob. He's so afraid. Rachel, who knows what she's doing? And Laban is filled with rage. And in the midst of all of this sinful human activity, the faithfulness and grace of God stands strong. What does he do? He comes to Laban in a dream. And warns him not to assert any authority over Jacob. That's probably what is meant by this uh, idea of speak nothing to him, either good or bad. It's probably an idiom, a figure of speech that basically conveys this more general idea, not to assert any authority over him. Verse 24, but God came to Laban 
the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. The same God who watched over Jacob as he came to Laban and as he was with Laban is now watching over him as he flees from Laban. And there is absolutely nothing that Laban can do. His hands are tied. He can't do anything against Jacob because he cannot do anything against Jacob's God. Not these little figurines. And I think there are two implications for us as we pause for a moment to reflect on these verses. First, God's protection overcomes our enemies. Maybe you've got some enemies right now that come to your mind. You know, I've been in work situations where there was a boss that was just terrible. It's just terrible. Or someone that is just bothering you, harassing you, making life miserable for you. That's an enemy. That's an adversary. And we know that there is one who is always bothering us and harassing us and who desires to unsettle us and destroy us, devour us. And that's Satan. But what we see in a passage like this is that God's protection overcomes all of our adversaries. In the end, in the end, there will be no enemy for the Christian. There will be no enemy for the people of God. This is one of the great themes when Jesus comes on the scene is that his people will now dwell in peace. And we know in this world that there is no peace for the Christian. There is persecution. But in the world to come, there will be perfect, unending peace. And so we recognize that none of our adversary schemes can overcome God's purposes. And so, as I said last week, what this does, this is amazing. This is all tied together. I hope you see that, is that that frees us up to set that aside and love that person. You see that? And pray for that person. That's the way Jesus' ethic, that's the way Jesus' teaching about what is right and wrong works, is that with the power of God and the promises of God and the hope in God before us, we are able to set aside offenses. It is the glory of a man to overlook an offense, as Proverbs says. We are able to set aside a smack on the cheek and turn the other cheek. We are able to endure that mistreatment and to love that person as Christ did. Only the life of Christ in a man or woman can produce this kind of life. Only the hope that God gives us through his promises can give rise to this kind of ethic. So we see God's protection overcoming our enemies, but we also see as another implication, God's protection overcoming our sin. It is interesting here how we see God's grace shine through. Did Rachel deserve that? No. Did Jacob deserve that? No. None of them deserved God's Protection, and that tells us that God doesn't protect us. He doesn't keep us. He doesn't preserve us because we deserve it. And so you know what? In the midst of your sin in the Christian life, you can go to a God who will forgive you and restore you, who does not work in your life because you've earned it, because you deserve it. He works in your life because of his own glory and the glory of his grace and the eternal praise of his grace. That's why he does the things he does in our lives. For his name's sake. 
And that's exactly what we see going on with Israel, right? In the Old Testament. God doesn't do that because they're so great. We know they're not. But he does it for his own glory. The glory of his grace. So thirdly, we come to confrontation. Verses 25 to 42. Confrontation. Stay with me. We're we're making our way through. Confrontation, verses 25 to 42. In these verses, we see the encounter between Jacob and Laban. There's a lot of tension that has built up to bring us to this point. A lot of tension in the story. Seven days of pursuit for Laban. I mean, when Laban finally gets in front of Jacob, he's been chasing him down for seven days. That's intense. When Jacob finally gets in front of Laban, he's been chased down for seven days and he's been mistreated for 20 years. This is going to be an intense encounter, a verbal lashing. And there are two things to notice here. First, Laban's rebuke and secondly, Jacob's rebuke. So we'll quickly go through each of these. Laban's rebuke. He rebukes Jacob for fleeing secretly. For driving away his family like captives and for not allowing him to say goodbye to his daughters and grandchildren. But the problem with Laban is you don't really get the sense that he cares a lot about his children and his grandchildren. You don't really get the sense that this is is what's really grieving him. It appears, however, especially in light of how he has treated his daughters, that Laban's real concern is these idols. These little figurines. You took my little figurines. Verses 29 to 30. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And listen to what he says. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house, whatever. But why did you steal my gods? That's the issue for Laban. That's what he really cares about. He's not interested in hugs and kisses. He wants his little gods, little puny gods. This then leads to a full search for Laban's idols. Jacob is confident that no one in his party has taken them. So he says in verse 32, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. Oh, that's not going to work out for him. If that, if Laban finds that it's Rachel, He has a right to kill Rachel, according to Jacob's words. He's putting Rachel's life in jeopardy. But Jacob is so confident that no one, after everything he said to Leah and Rachel in the field, after everything they've seen, no one would take these gods and steal them from Laban and twist and pervert this this fleeing. But of course, that's exactly what has happened. Laban searches everywhere and cannot find them. Rachel sits on them and says she is in the midst of her menstrual cycle. And all of this has the effect of delegitimizing Laban's rebuke. So Laban has nothing, right? He has nothing, no case. In court, if there's a judge watching these guys duke it out with their words, Laban is left in this story with nothing, empty hands. But then we come to Jacob's rebuke, not empty hands. Verses 36 to 37, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin? You have hotly pursued me, for you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of your own household goods? Set it before, set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us. Put them out here. What have have you found in all these tents? You've done a, a massive search of everyone's tent, and what have you found? Put it out before us all to see. 
And then Jacob launches into a 20-year review. He gives a 20-year history lesson to Laban. Laban's mistreatment, his own hardships, and God's blessings. We, I think, get this all wrapped up in three verses. Verse 40. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. <laughs> One of the things that's interesting here is that we often, t- we, we tend to think of shepherds, the life of a shepherd, as being so idyllic, you know, so uh, romantic, out in the field and just kind of staring at the stars, hands crossed behind the head, just, just sort of taking it easy, reading a book, you know, just kind of leisuring. Now, that's not what we have here at all. This is a miserable existence that Jacob has endured all these years. Verse 41, you have changed my wages 10 times. So not only is he hot and cold and tired, he has nothing throughout this period, nothing he can count on. Verse 42, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. So I want to draw out a couple of implications as we have for the other points that we've gone through. A couple of implications here. First, God alone deserves the glory for our successes and safety. What does Jacob do as he reflects on this 20 years? Well, one thing he does is he points at Laban's face and he says, look at what you've done to me. But another thing that he does is, but look at what God has done for me. Look at how God has watched over me. God alone deserves all the glory for all of your successes, all of your blessings, all of your prosperity, all of your safety. God gets the glory. And in fact, it is giving thanks to God for what he does for us that is at the heart of a Christian life. We know that because it is not giving thanks to God that is at the heart of an unbeliever's life. Romans. Chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Do you see that? What is, what is it as Paul is reflecting on the wickedness of humankind throughout history? He's reflecting on the unbelieving heart. What is it that he says? What's the, what's the bottom line? And isn't it amazing that at the bottom of that is this point? They don't give thanks to God. That tells us that when God remakes the heart, when God turns the light on in the heart, when God saves a sinner, it switches to what? To gratitude. So if this is not something that marks your life, now we don't do it perfectly, we know that. We grumble. We don't thank God. We ignore, we neglect. But if gratitude to God is just not even a part of your life, this is another opportunity for you to examine yourself and say, you know what? Maybe I'm just a cultural Christian. Maybe I'm not really a Christian because this does not mark me. In fact, I don't honor God or give thanks to him at all. That's not a part of my life. That's a defining characteristic of a Christian. And secondly, and I love this implication, the God of Israel, the fear of Isaac, as Jacob calls him, cannot even be compared with the worthless idols of this world. Now, you have to see this. This is beautiful. This is a story all about the majesty of God's providential care. 
And it is being compared with these little figurines that get sat on by a woman pretending to be in her menstrual cycle. Do you see it? There's a massive, massive contrast here. In fact, the contrast is so strong that they're incomparable. There is the God of history, the God of glory, the God we worship. And then there's everything we erect in his place is like these little figurines sat on. That's what the idols of this world are like when compared to the glory of the fear of Isaac. As we finish up this morning, we come to the treaty. The Lord has been with Jacob for this entire 20-year period. He has provided and he has protected. And now this period of his life involving Laban comes to an end, an abrupt end. God has used Laban in Jacob's life to prosper him to bring offspring, and even to discipline him. And this is interesting. Think about that. The people you think are enemies in your life are instruments of the Lord. Laban was an instrument of the Lord in Jacob's life. I remember reading John MacArthur's uh, biography by Ian Murray, Banner of Truth, put that out. And one of the things that John MacArthur said in there that has, that has just struck, stuck with me is that he came to realize in his life that criticism he received in ministry was God's means of grace for him in keeping him humble and in, in, in growing him in his Christian life. God uses our enemies, our adversaries to build us up, to make us more holy, to teach us trust, to humble us, to push us down when we need to be pushed down. But that chapter of his life has now come to an end and in verses 43 to 55, Laban and Jacob enter into a covenant, a treaty, a pact, an agreement of peace. The stones they erect serve two purposes. They are witnesses. Verse 47, Laban called it Jager Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. And both of these words mean the heap of witness. So these stones are a witness. But they are also a boundary marker. Verse 52, this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. So they are a witness and they are a separation, a boundary. And all of this is done before God. Laban Laban's God seems to be a very vague, polytheistic idea. Verse 53, the God of Abraham and, and the God of Nahor and the God of their father. Judge, these, the, that, that God, the, the gods who have been working in the past, those, that God will make this covenant before him. We know from Joshua 24, 2, that the descendants of Abraham were idol worshipers. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So for Laban, when he, when he makes this pact and eats this meal and makes these promises before God, it's a general polytheistic idea of God. Not so for Jacob. For Jacob, the God before whose eyes he makes this treaty is specific and personal. Verse 53. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father, Isaac. Jacob swears by a very specific God who has looked after him. And Laban here is just sort of lumping it all together. I think we can sum up the effect of verses 43 to 55 with two words. Peace 
and release. And all of that is captured in the final verse. Look with me at the final verse. Yes, you're thinking we made it to the final verse. Verse 55. Here's what it says. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. What we have here is peace and release. God has protected Jacob from further mistreatment, from Laban's violent intentions, and now he removes Jacob from Laban altogether. And let me say this to you. If there's a person in your life that's a constant thorn in your flesh, God may not ever remove that person from your life, but we can see from this story that he very well may according to his purposes and in his perfect timing. As we close, this passage reminds us of the release, the deliverance, and freedom from slavery that God brought Israel in the Exodus. And so when I came to this passage uh, in a commentary written by Kent Hughes, he entitled this passage Mesopotamian Exodus, is what he called this. So for him... He sees this as a pointer towards the exodus of Israel that that just as Jacob is released from bondage under Laban, he he leaves plundering him, right? He has all of this wealth. He's plundered him. Remember the first verse with the sons. They say basically that that Jacob has plundered our father. So he leaves with all of these goods and he's released. And the same is true of the the Israelites in the exodus. They, They leave Egypt. They are freed from slavery and they have all of these goods from the Egyptians, but even more, even more, this points us to a greater liberation, the one to which all other liberation points. Colossians 1 verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you are a Christian, you have been freed You've been freed from darkness. You've been freed from sin. You've been freed from death. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You will never die. There is a sense in which that is true. You will literally come to the end of your biological existence before Christ raises you. And your your consciousness, your soul will pass from an embodied state to a disembodied state like that. You will never cease to be With the Lord. And that's why Jesus says that eternal life is to know God. And Jesus Christ to me is sent. Because we know God now. We'll know God in the hour of death. We'll know God the second our heart stops beating. We'll know him forever. There will never be a time that we don't know him. We have been freed in Christ. God has given us peace and release. In Christ, God has protected us. And he will protect us right into glory. And one day... There will be no enemy to protect us from. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of your word. We pray that the truths that are here will be the basis for our meditation in the coming week. We thank you for your protection. We thank you for your wisdom that sometimes it seems like you are not protecting us. And yet you are in ways we cannot see and will not be able to see fully in this life. Help us trust you. Help us wait on you. 
Help us in our fear. Help us in our grumbling. Be merciful to us, O God. You are a God of infinite grace. And we praise you through Christ our Lord. Amen.